All right. Welcome to another episode of the Speed Change Review Podcast. Today with Matt Brown. Hi, Matt. How's it going? It's going well. Great to be here. Excited to uh, excited to be on the podcast. Yes, absolutely. I already told you before a press record. I'm super excited that you're on um, for a couple of reasons. And um, so the primary being that I discovered you uh, uh, really, uh, which I think shows again, um, you know, how great it is actually to share information online. Um, I discovered you through uh, actually one of the articles that you wrote on your um, uh, or published on your personal webpage. So I'm super excited and we're going to get all uh, about that. But uh, before we, you know, kind of get into all these things, um, you know, as the icebreaker question uh, that we have on this podcast, uh, which I guess the easiest question to kind of like uh, answer from a guest perspective is is obviously, you know, who's Matt Brown? Um, I would definitely love for you to take the time and kind of guide us through your story on where you're coming from, uh, what you did, you know, different stages, sort of say, and also take take your time for the details because you know uh, the the details are the the beauty of this. And then you know we'll we'll get into into all the exciting things. Perfect. Sounds sounds great. Um, so as as you, as you mentioned, I'm uh, Matt Brown. I'm currently an investor at Matrix. We're a early stage VC. The the fund itself has been around for. Uh, 40, 40 plus years. So I've been, been doing this for quite a long time. Um, before this, I was uh, an operator. So led merchant product at Afterpay, which is one of the first uh, buy now, pay later to join them as they were expanding from Australia to the United States and uh, worked on a, a bunch of interesting fintech uh, projects there, working on a relationship with the various e-commerce platforms, a bunch of acquiring and issuing and kind of very you know, deep in the weeds, fintech project, uh, merchant acquisition. So it really was uh, uh, an awesome experience at a kind of hyper hyperscale company um, that had a very interesting merchant component, very interesting consumer component, a lot of uh, a very interesting fintech component. So a lot of you know kind of fun stories and experiences and learning uh, I can share there. And then before that, spent 10, 10 years or so as a as a founder myself. So started two two companies. Uh, the one right before. Afterpay was called Bonsai. It was a vertical, uh, started as a vertical SaaS business. And I, we can talk about you know that in more detail, but it was actually out of that experience that um, my focus and, and kind of belief in vertical ERPs and vertical SaaS and embedded FinTech came. Um, we, we originally started that business um, to build software for freelancers and very, very small businesses to run their businesses more efficiently. And we went through YC and we raised seed rounds and the business was doing fine, but, but not exceptionally. And we actually thought about, you know, potentially shutting it down or pivoting to something else because um, it was very hard to monetize just through SAC. You had very high churn, you had a, a low willingness to pay and all these other issues that if you were looking at the business or looking at the market from a SAC lens, you, you think it's not a good market. And this was in 2015. So before you had many embedded fintech options and before I think fintech was even really much of a, a, a term. And we, we decided to, to take a risk to do an experiment and say, what if we started looking at payments as a product? What if we integrated payments and we could offer that as a, a feature to our users and then we could monetize that? And that worked exceptionally well. It was another revenue stream. It made the product stickier. Um, it helped us acquire new users. And, and so we said, oh, maybe there's something here. Maybe it's not just SaaS, but maybe there are these other financial products that we can add to make the product, um, you know, to, to, to expand the TAM and expand the LTV and increase stickiness and all this sort of thing. And, and 
we went down that road and we, we certainly weren't the first doing that, but I would say we were definitely early in, in thinking about um, how you can use fintech products as a SaaS company to, to, to improve your overall, uh, to improve the overall product. And that was, that was incredibly successful. So that was actually my first introduction to all of these, you know, what is interchange? What is the, what is the kind of payments model? How do different people in there make money? What is, you know, how do you do lending and credit? What are the different kinds of that? And what's in, what's invoice factoring and all that. So it was, a, it was definitely a crash course, um, as, as you can say in that, um, and then before that started a, a, another company called Workfor, which was a um, uh, enterprise SaaS company, if you will, focused on recruiting and HR. So sold a variety of tools to large companies to help them recruit more efficiently. Um, and 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 I should say both of those those companies that I started, as well as Afterpay, were all backed by Matrix. And so Matrix was the first investor. Both of those companies early investor in Afterpay. Um, and so I eventually joined the firm, but but. Uh, yeah, it's, it's an incredible, uh, you know, I would say under the radar uh, investor, but for the folks that know the firm and and, and are, I think, fortunate enough to, to work with them as founders or as um, uh, as executives at these companies, it's, uh, it's, it's a great partner for early stage companies. So, yeah, that's a little bit about me and uh, what I've been uh, what I've been doing. Happy to go deep on any of those points. Yeah, absolutely. And we're going to talk about, um, you know, obviously about your perspective from Matrix. But before we do so, um, you know, let's maybe start chronologically um, from from kind of uh, one question. Uh, so for your first company, I want to, uh, you know, uh, and I love this question. I want to understand on what was what was kind of the background for you to get into starting a company, right? And, and to start a venture back company. Um, give, give us kind of like the backstory there. Yeah, for sure. Well, we originally... Uh, didn't start out as a venture back company or, or really intending to be a venture back company or even um, knowing there was such a thing as, as venture back companies. We um, we originally started the business very opportunistically. Um, we we said at the time, uh, so it was, it was the initial products were built primarily on the Facebook platform, which back in 2010 was the was you know cutting edge, and they had just opened the Facebook Ads API and they were opening APIs to being able to make posts on your timeline and things like this. And the the thing we we saw or believed at the time was recruitment and job advertising and all this was a huge market. Again, at the time you had companies like Indeed, which had just been or was about to be bought for I think over a billion dollars, which was a huge exit back in 2010. Um, Monster.com was still large. So job advertising was a, was a, a, a huge market. And the the belief was that Facebook, given the growth trajectory that it was on, was the largest revenue, or sorry, the largest uh, resume database in the world, right? You you didn't have the depth and the richness of profile that you had on, on LinkedIn, but everybody was on Facebook and everybody had enough information on their profile that you could kind of figure out who they were and even kind of target them accurately through advertising. Um, and the engagement on the platform was such that like, you know, nobody really checks LinkedIn, nobody really opens emails from recruiters, but everybody, again, back in 2010, was on Facebook at the time. And so the belief was this, uh, the, the idea was this sort of arbitrage where we said, nobody's at recruitment advertising is big. Facebook is big. Nobody's really combining the two. Let's let's combine the two. The benefit in the early days, it was a very, um, it was a very uh, efficient business in that, you know, we could basically sell uh whether it's software or advertising services to companies, they would pay us and then we wouldn't have to pay Facebook for, you know, 30 days, 60 days later, whatever it is. And so we built this very 
um, efficient and and um, uh, you know cash flow positive business pretty quickly and and just ramped it up, grew it from there. Um, eventually, as the business was growing so quickly, we wanted to invest more in the software. We wanted to shift away. Uh, we we're still doing some services and want to shift more to building pure software, going after larger customers. Um, we decided to raise raise money, um, and that's when we first got introduced to Matrix. And we talked to several other firms. Uh, but Matrix was the one that, again, just kind of clicked, clicked with us as founders, as people that had um, everybody at Matrix had built or operated a business at scale before. So it really wasn't, here's my you know intellectual thoughts on your board deck. It's more, tell me about the two operational problems that you're facing this week that are like air on fire problems. And let's let's get in the, the weeds with you to, to solve them. And so that really appealed to us as um, you know young founders who are trying to build this business and, and scale it and there were certainly things that we knew and we knew how to do well but uh, as you know starting a business is um yeah it, every week presents you with some new challenge that you don't know or some something you you have to learn and so having a good investor is like having a cheat code to um to do that yeah what what, what was the biggest kind of um if you, if you look back so you you were also i mean you're a product person from let's say from the operational roles um if um if you if you look at that chapter for your first company um from a maturity level as a product person uh if you look back what was how how if you look back now how did you feel about you knowing how to build good product <laughs> after that chapter during that chapter <laughs> yeah. yeah um yeah it's, i mean it, there certainly was a very steep learning curve um, and, and I think particularly in product, and I, I think about this a lot these days, there definitely is this half dependence that, that particularly product people have based on their first couple of experiences, right? If you're in a, if you're a, a PM at a big company building enterprise software, then you learn to think about shipping things, building things, and what is an MVP and all that in a very different way than somebody who is at a consumer, a PM at a consumer startup app. And so there is this aspect of sort of path, path dependence. I, I think I was I was fortunate in that the company that that we built at the time was was a mix. We were certainly selling into larger companies, but we also had small and medium sized business customers. Um, so there was this, you know, in some cases a long six or nine month sales cycle, but in other cases it was a one month sales cycle on the smaller side of things. And then there was a consumer component, if you will. It was still a B two B product, but you had to learn how to, um, you know, how to get individual employees at a company to want to adopt you know, this thing or to use the software. And so it, it was, uh, at least to me, it was kind of an ideal product to learn product in, to get thrown into the deep end because there were so many different, you know, the enterprise piece, the F&B piece, the consumer piece, you got to touch, touch all of those. Um, the one lesson that I, I think I still take away, um, you know, from that and that still informs how I think about fintech investing, even though it's a completely different area, is around platform dependence. So I think that was one of the big, um, mistakes that we made in that company is we focused on Facebook because it was the it was a you know it was kind of the wild west. There was a ton of users on there. Distribution, you know, you had these very powerful distribution tools, and I think we had a very optimistic view about the the upside of the you know building on Facebook, um, but we didn't really consider the potential downsides, which became clear in the, the fullness of time, which you're building on somebody else, somebody else's platform. You're building on real estate that somebody else owns. And it's, and by the way, it's not always in a negative way. It's not just like, oh, they're going to shut you down or they're going to do something you don't like. Although that is 
always a risk. Um, I remember one time we spent, you know, three or six months, you know, really trying to optimize this one, one product and part of the advertising. And we, you know, the team worked super hard on it and we made a, uh, I'm kind of making up numbers here, but we made a 10% improvement in this. And we we're like, this is amazing. We, you know, hard work, you know, uh, paid off. We're like, we pushed against the way the platform worked and we made it work the way we wanted it to. And then a couple months later, some PM somewhere changed something arbitrarily in the background that I think it improved things by like 50%. And it's just, you know, it's a little, you know, you, you realize in those cases, even in the positive cases that you're just not completely in control of your own destiny. So I think it was a lesson to, you know, certainly there, there are many, many companies grow quickly and initially off the back of platforms, but I, but I always look now for, um, when that's the case, you know, do you have a very clear plan of how do you use that as a stepping stone? How do you grow quickly, but then step off the platform and build your own user acquisition, build your own, um, you know, whatever it is, uh, rather than just say, hey, this is this is the end all be all of the company. Five years from now, we're still going to be getting 90% of our users from this platform, because I think that's very rarely the case. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I'm, I'm super curious about... Um... You know, when I, I was reading your your articles, what, what I, you know, I got the feeling of like, okay, this is somebody that knows what he's talking about. So that there's like really this depth to understanding, you know, this particular area. And so, which which obviously comes from experience, right? And and really having spent spent a lot of time thinking about it, right? And and also obviously building something in in, in that domain. So I'm I'm curious if if we put that you know if we put that on on product you know kind of as a role and uh, especially on the early stage of of you know forming a forming a company or forming a venture, um, you know and and I want to do the transition now towards bonsai because um yeah, I, you know that's that's probably the the better example here, in the early stages right where you kind of like pick a given domain right or you come you you some sort of sort of have like a, a problem that you're that you're kind of trying to you know obviously find product market fit for um mm -hmm. and building product around that from your experience what's what's the and, and the question is whether there is a best way but like how do you feel about a let's say sort of say best way to approaching that because there's so many things that you kind of like need to need to take into account right um, fitting into into the kind of you know the economic constraints of of a business and you know uh, understanding your user acquiring etc like finding the platforms where you're going to be you know acquiring users what's what's your approach towards you know the the actual product the pro product building yeah no it's a great it's a great are, are you talking about uh just to make sure i understand the question is it starting a company from scratch or if you're, if you're a founder or if you're a PM within a, a larger company and, and building new products in that context. No, 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 really from a founder's perspective, right? Where you're really yep. re responsible and, and have the, let's say, key ownership on product. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a great question. This is something that I, I, I think a lot about and am, am very passionate about for sure. So I think the biggest thing, and it, it took me, it took me the, the second company, Bonsai, and, and many years to, understand this, but you know, there's this expression or this, this um, saying that, that I love, which is, you know, first time founders think about product and second time founders think about distribution. Um, and, and to me, that is like the, the heart of what it really gets at. Um, yes, you need to be, uh, you know, you need to be strong at product and yes, you need to have a point of view on who your end users you are and 
you need to make sure you're delivering them, you know, uh, value and all this sort of thing. But I, I think that especially now, and this has only gotten tr more and more true in recent years as it's become easier to build um, software, as you have all these low and no code tools, as you, you know, you have cloud everything and tools for everything and you can plug everything together. It's, it's actually quite easy to build almost anything, including financial products. Like even in 2015, it was relatively hard to, um, you know, to build some kind of a financial product. And now you have 10 different, um, you know, issuers who can, you know, in, in two days, you can be issuing virtual debit cards and bank cards and things like this. So um, I think it's never been easier to build anything, which means the the choke point, if you will, on, on success really is on distribution. And so, so what does it mean to, to really think about distribution? I, I think the two things are, what is the right distribution for you as a founder and then what's the right distribution channel for for the product and so for, for you as a founder um just recognize like what you are good at and what you enjoy doing and where you think you have an edge like after i left work for and, and started bonsai i realized that i i didn't really like enterprise sale i could do it i could sell i could do this i i managed the sales team there for a little bit but that wasn't the thing that like got me up in the morning. And it's like, I really want to go figure out the comp plan. And I really want to go do this. Like I could do it, but it wasn't the thing that gave me energy. Um, I really enjoyed the, the, the kind of product led growth, the self-serve aspect for it. So I started thinking about, are there cases that, um, yeah, are the cases that um, I should find a product that has that kind of a distribution model. And then more specifically, um, you know, I, I spent a bunch of time, on various SEO projects. We did a lot of um, uh, programmatic SEO to generate landing pages for different jobs and went very, very deep on that. And so I thought, okay, I know what, I know I don't want to do enterprise sales. I want it to be a little bit more self-serve. Within self-serve, there are a lot of different ways to, you know, to grow, but particularly SEO, I feel like that's something I have an edge in. And so I almost start I, I I had that lens when I was looking at ideas. I said, okay, I no sales, no direct sales and something that SEO can be a strong um, distribution channel for. And that's that's part of the, the key filter that I used to find the, the bonsai opportunity. And again, that, that was that's a very helpful filter to have because, you know, two years in or 18 months in when you're kind of in the, the trough of sorrow or, or whatever it is, and you're like, yeah, it's not really going well and, and uh, this is not working. You need to have every little bit of... Um, uh, energy and excitement that you can get from the, the the company and the product helps. And if you wake up and you're like, oh man, I, I just don't want to go do another, uh, you know, five enterprise demos, that's, that's not going to be, that's not going to be great for you or the company. But if you're like, ah, you know, it's tough right now, but I'm really excited by the opportunity to go run this experiment or try this new SEO thing or tweak this, um, that that's a, you know, the, the energy and excitement management needs to match with the, the channel and the founder's expertise. So I, I think that's one big thing. Um, and then the second, the second one on product is, yeah, does, does the type of product that you're selling, um, match, uh, like does the type of product, the value, the, the persona that you're selling to match the distribution channel that you, that you have. And so, um, you know, there are a bunch of rules of thumb on this, but you, generally speaking, if it's a higher value product, yes, you can do some SEO, but like if you're selling a hundred thousand dollar ACB contract generally you, you'll probably need some kind of inside sales or some kind of customer uh, success function or things like that whereas if it's completely self-serve then um you know then it's more suited to SEO so I think just being being very very clear on not just what you can do because again the best founders can do anything if you put 
founders in inside sales or outside sales or fields, whatever it is, they'll be able to figure that out. But like, what do you actually get energy from doing? What do you have a real edge in distribution? And then use that to decide what ideas you want to choose, because ultimately, um, you know, there, there, and there are plenty of examples of this companies that have inferior products, but end up winning over uh, better products because they just have better distribution. And it's not just better distribution because they worked harder at distribution, but better distribution because the founder said, I have an edge in this and I'm excited to do it. And so I'm going to spend a bunch of time figuring out the, the distribution side of things. And I think obviously the the challenge then lies in really, you know, balancing the act between, you know, actually developing the product and, and you know, and the distribution channels. But again, I think because, and this, this, this then comes perfectly, I think if you say like, you know, when you're trying to look for product market fit, right? distribution becomes even more important right because that's that's what you need to do right you need to get it in, across you know your let's say customers or the customers that you think are your customers right as 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 quickly and as as with a high frequency of iteration as as, as possible right and um if we talk about so before i forget that point you know distribution um and, and and we move on to other things um if you look now from your perspective obviously at matrix right how has that shifted if we look right now at, at you know kind of currently the status quo for distribution channels in, in B2B companies, right? Um, how, how has that shifted? What do you see kind of as, you know, as, as the main channels or are there kind of like, you know, key tactics to, to be utilizing, which are kind of like a one fit one size fits all approach, right? Or uh, is it more individual kind of uh, approach that is, that is to be taken? What, what's your opinion on that? Yeah, it's a good, it's a good question. And that actually, so when I was, when I first started at Matrix, um, somebody there or somebody here asked me, what do you think will be the biggest challenge for you in, in, in the role? And, and I answered basically a version of this. I said, I come from a product background. I'm a founder. I love building on products. I love working on products. And I think it's very easy to fall into this, the shiny, you know, oh, this is a shiny thing. Oh, I like the way this, you know, this product is really cool, but not stepping back and thinking and remembering that again, even sometimes you know, uglier products that are more clunky and all this kind of thing can win over products that are more polished and have more features and whatever it is because they've really figured out a, a distribution channel. So that's one thing I, I try to be very aware of whenever I evaluate a company and all this is like, what is the unique distribution advantage or insight or whatever it is of, of this company? Um, I, I think it, yeah. So and to, to answer your question specifically, I think it varies, it varies a lot by, by the, by the, the market. So, uh, just quickly on Matrix, as a firm, we're we're generalists, but individual investors are a little bit more focused. So I invest primarily in fintech, and that can be broad. It's obviously core payments and, and credit, but also um, we do a lot of prop tech and, and kind of real estate investing. We, we've looked at a bunch of companies in insure tech, so relatively broad there. And then we have some of our partners focus more on developer tools and infrastructure. Uh, so many different many different areas. But I'd say with you within fintech. One one trend that I um, that I've seen on distribution to work very well is, um, and this is a tricky is a tricky balance to strike, but um, distribution through partners um, or distrib distribution through some kind of whether it's a type of software platform or whatever it is that um, already has access to customers. So rather than having to sell you know a million different small merchants, you you sign a couple of big contracts or whatever it is, and then they. Uh, not only have already have all these customers, but they're incentivized to to kind of um, push you to these customers. So a couple of examples of that. Um, 
uh, Afterpay is a great example. So Afterpay was one of the first buy, you know, buy now pay leaders as a consumer. You're making an e-commerce purchase. I'm buying a hundred dollar t-shirt, and rather than paying a hundred dollars up front, I can pay twenty five dollars every two weeks. Um, and this was uh, the, the one of one of several big innovations there was around the the fact that it was point of sale distributed. So um, as a consumer. I didn't have to sign up. I didn't really have to have Afterpay market to me. I would just go do my normal shopping on, you know, whatever. And as I go to check out, I see this option on the checkout page. Um, and and I'd say, oh, I could pay with credit card $100 now, or I could pay, you know, an installment. Oh, I'm going to do this, you know. And, um, and, and so that was a, you know, Afterpay was able to build a huge consumer base very, very quickly because they would sell to, they would, have a partnership with Shopify, BigCommerce, WooCommerce, the various e-commerce platforms, um, and then they would make it very, very easy for merchants to um, uh, to to add this to their checkout, and then they market to the merchants. So there certainly was some aspect of selling to the merchants. But once you sell to a, a single merchant and they're integrated, every single consumer that's using the product uh, that's using the checkout will see after paying. Eventually, if there are enough merchants and you're exposed to enough consumers. You build this large consumer base, but that's an example of like distribution through through one kind of partner. Um, I, I think there there are plenty plenty of examples of that. So we have you know one company that sells um, insurance through uh, to renters, but sells it through landlords, and they partner with the software uh, platforms that landlords use to manage their units, and and they sell through there. Um, I'm trying to think of other examples, but yeah, they're, they're just I, I think some of the the smarter founders now um, know. Yeah, know are recognizing the distribution method. Know who the right partners are. Know how to cut the right deals to incentivize these partners to um, to market to their um, you know to their end users. Um, uh, yeah, so I I think this kind of selling to partners is a big big area. Yeah, absolutely. That's a very great point here. Um, you know, m moving moving forward uh, into into uh, into your chapter at 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 Bonsai. Um, with you know kind of the i, I want to get get that chapter as well with the you know original story of of starting the the company as well you know um mm -hmm. with finding you co-founders i i saw that um and you mentioned that right so uh matrix was the f investor into your first company and then also yep. into your second company and uh, mm -hmm. you were i guess i you know that that idea came came out of uh, out of working together with them um, you know, guide us through guide us through kind of the early days uh, of, of of that. Yeah, absolutely. So it as as many companies do, it actually started with a very different um, uh, kind of idea, and and uh, from what it eventually became. But so when I when I left work for, I had a bunch of experience working with with HR and recruiting teams at large companies, small companies, and saw how competitive you know the space was. There are tons of um, applicant tracking systems and employee engagement software and referral management systems is a very, uh, it's a big space, but a very competitive space. And, and one thing I, I noticed there, and, and we saw this in our own company as well as in the companies we worked with is, um, there was this shift where, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't massive at the time, it was 2014, um, but companies were shifting from hiring full-time people to, to hiring contractors. And so rather than hiring somebody full-time who was going to be in you know, your office and you pay them a full-time salary and whatever it is, you could go find a contractor or a freelancer, whoever it is, who's the best in the world or the best in your state or country or whatever it is at doing SEO for your type of business or for doing graphic design. You could hire them on a project basis and, and do that. And so that was the, 
the, I think the, the shift that I had recognized at the time, but then looking at how that's managed within these companies, there was really nothing, right? It was completely ad hoc. And it was just this, it was a very clear um, uh, difference where you have all these tools and all this money and all this competition on hiring and managing and retaining full-time people. But then this, you know, new trend with the contractors, there really was nothing there. And people are kind of making it up as they go, that they're having difficulty to find these contractors, to pay these contractors. Um, and so I, I wanted to, the, the vision initially was, um, was, was to build kind of an HR suite or tools for companies to manage and hire um, freelancers, contractors, agencies, things like that. Um, and so that was, that was the plan originally. The, the distribution, if you will, um, the idea was for it to be self-serve and kind of, again, product-led growth before product-led growth was a thing. And so the, the idea, which was a very complicated, you know, we're going to do A and then we're going to do B and then we're going to do C kind of step thing, which which I don't recommend doing, which I, I, I see as kind of a failure mode um, for a lot of companies and was a failure mode for us, was we said, okay, eventually we want to sell companies to manage their freelance uh, freelancers. But I'm not really good at selling to companies. I don't really like it. I think it can take a lot of time. Um, but we know that these companies are working with freelancers. So why don't we? And we were inspired by, um, you know, DocuSign, where you know you send a you send a contract to somebody and they sign it, and then after you sign it, you see the little sign up screen. It's like, hey, don't you want to create your own DocuSign account to, um, you know, to uh, to uh, uh, you know to to manage your own documents? And so we said, what if we created a product that freelancers could use to manage their own businesses. The freelancers would, um, we'd give it to them for free. We, we'd uh, have a contract builder specifically for freelance contracts. We'd give them invoices, kind of an all-in-one suite for freelancers, give that away for free. And then when the freelancers sent a contract or sent an invoice to the marketing manager at Google or whatever it is to pay them for their work or sign the contract, we'd have the same flow where we'd say, hey, marketing manager at Google, don't you want to centralize all this work that you're doing with freelancers and have one dashboard and one database and one way to pay them and all of this? Um, so we, so let's see, so we built the freelancer piece uh, that was growing very, very well, really, really nicely. Um, we were giving it away for free to be sure, but nothing like that had really ever existed in the, the freelancer market. Um, and we went through, uh, we went through YC with that idea. And the advice we got in YC was, uh, which I now you know know to be very very true, is like don't build an A then B business. Like if if your product strategy is we're going to build A and that's going to allow us to do B and A is important, but we're really going to make the money in B and our and our our real customers are B and all this. Like that's a, that's a bad strategy. Um, mm -hmm. Like if you really think the opportunity is in B, then go directly to B. Um, and and that that's the story we were telling ourselves, and we were kind of deceiving ourselves where we said, oh, well, we're going to, we're going to spend all this time on the freelance product, but eventually that's going to help us close all these customers. Um, and so it was through, and we raised some money uh, based on the freelance growth, but, but said, we're going to go now try to build this company product. And we, we started doing that. We spent several months doing your classic, um, uh, you know, kind of enterprise sales. And again, it was something that myself and our co-founders, we, didn't really enjoy doing, but we're like, okay, the freelance product is working. It's generating these leads for us in the enterprise or in large companies, you know, freelancers are sending invoices to big companies. So let's go try to sell them. Let's build, let's try to build a product for them. And after several months, we realized that we were just banging our head against the wall. We, we knew we were having some success. We had sold some customers. Some of them were paying us. 
Um, we had some big, you know, interesting names who were using the product for various, but all of them were using it for different things. Um, and all of them wanted slightly different things. So it really didn't feel like product market fit. It really didn't feel like a, a, a persona that you could, um, that, that you could wrap your arms around. And so after a few months of that, we, we actually said, maybe we should pivot entirely. Should we shut the company down? Like clearly this vision doesn't make sense. Clearly this vision, you know, isn't working. Um, and we, we kind of, we, we, we spent several weeks looking at all these other kinds of businesses that we could pivot to and, and all this. And eventually we looked back at the data and we saw that the freelance product was, um, was just growing very rapidly on its own, despite us not doing any more marketing on it. We weren't answering support tickets. We weren't adding new features. And yet people, freelancers were referring other freelancers and there was, um, there was just a lot of demand and usage on it, despite very limited investment. So we said, okay, let, let's set ourselves uh, uh, kind of a timeline. Let's say we're going to do away with this, this company facing product and let's give ourselves three months. And, and at the time we weren't charging for the freelance product. And let's, and we said, let's, let's pick a price. Let's start charging all existing users for it. Let's just put this paywall up and let's say we want to hit you know, 10K of ARR in three months or, or MRR, I think it was 10K of MRR in three months. And if we don't hit that, then we will pivot and do something else. But we've already spent all this time in this, you know, this effort to build a freelance product. So we, we did that. And after three months, we hit the, we hit the, uh, the goal that we set. And we said, okay, let, let's raise the goal. Let's try to get the, you know, I don't know, 30K in, in six months uh, of MRR. And, and eventually we hit that and we said, okay, I think we found, uh, we found our, we found our product here. We, we, um, and so we just focused on that. We doubled down on building a great product for freelancers and very, very small businesses to manage their um, their own businesses. So it's this full suite of um, contracts, proposals, invoicing, time tracking, a bunch of different tools. Um, so a lot of lessons around product bundling and, and adding things together and all this. Um, but one thing I'll say that, that may uh, kind of lead into one of your next questions is, Part of the reason we didn't want to focus on freelancers at first is we knew that they, um, from a SaaS perspective, weren't a great market. They have freelancers just naturally turn a lot. You have a lot of people who are freelancing part-time. And so not a not a very strong uh, a market to sell SaaS to. And so we knew we were always, it was always going to be a high turn, you know, uh, expensive to acquire these users kind of, kind of thing. Um, and so we eventually said, or we eventually kind of discovered that if, if we wanted to make this a very healthy business, you had to think of ways that you could retain users more, that you could charge more than $20, $30, $40 a month um, without actually explicitly charging a subscription that's more than that. And we, again, kind of stumbled upon payments and FinTech and embedded FinTech as a, as a solution to that. And so um, once we kind of got the, you know, uh, oriented around the subscription model and uh, started doing more marketing and growing the user base. We focused a lot on how can we monetize through through financial products, and that was a, again another very successful app. It's something that made the company very successful. This was the first thought I had when 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 reading you know your article on the on the uh, uh, verbs right, and and I I thought to myself, okay, this is actually something that you need to you know this is something you need to discover right so kind of like this this how do you work around that how do you work around the challenge of that given market right because it is clearly something that is you know obviously um for let's say 
most of the people looking at potential, you know, venture cases, right? Not just from the founder perspective, but also from the investor perspective. It's like a clear kind of signal of like, okay, no, this is this is going to be a tough one, right? Under understanding, like, okay, you can work around that. There's an, there's an opportunity to still, you know, make it financially kind of attractive, um, and and build a healthy business around that. Like, what is the requirement for for, for you know for finding that, you know, fi finding these or spotting these opportunities because, and tell me about your experience. Uh, clearly, I mean, you've learned from it and have written about it as well then, you know, what's, mm. what's, uh, what's kind of like the, you know, the, the, the magic for, for, for discovering that. Yes. Yeah, so, so I could take specifically for this, this idea of, of kind of vertical software and, and embedding FinTech to it. And, yeah. um, uh, I think the, the way you, you can identify opportunities there is, is, is understanding cases where a, a persona of users or a segment of users are, are just using multiple tools and they're stitching those tools together to, to fit um, to fit their use case. So they're using these uh, like horizontal generic tools. So as, as an example, when we started doing user research for, for Bonsai, and, and by the way, the idea uh, behind the name Bonsai is that, you know, Bonsais are these, these small versions of of um of larger trees and genetically they're very very like the tree that's one foot tall is genetically very similar to the tree that's 300 feet tall um but they require a bonsais require a completely different set of tools and methods you have to have these small clippers and you have to water them in a different way and fertilize them in a different way than the big trees and so the, the idea behind the name is uh, uh, a freelance business or a very very small business is in a lot of ways, you know, genetically similar to Google or Apple. You have income, you have expenses, you have cogs, you have all this kind of thing. But because the scale is so different, it requires a completely different set of tools to to manage that business. And so that was kind of the idea. Is like it's just the the smaller scale of these businesses requires completely different tools. So even something like a, a QuickBooks, um, you know, a, accounting is in a lot of cases overkill for segments of bond size users because QuickBooks and it is kind of traditional accounting suites are, are meant for businesses that have inventory and physical goods and more of a cost of goods sold. But a lot of these businesses are, are purely service-based businesses. Yeah, they have some cogs. Yes, I have to have a Photoshop subscription or whatever it is. But um, but at the end of the day, like I'm just selling my time. And so that, you know, the, the default way that a lot of these tools force you to think about your business is different. So, um, so I think, yeah, num number one is understanding the what is the workflow of a, of a given uh, a given product and the more the more different tools you can see them using and the more generic those tools and the more customized the user has to make that that kind of workflow i think the bigger the bigger the opportunity so back in 2014 2015 when we talked to you know a a, a freelance designer for example we asked them what's your workflow like they say oh well i you know i have my personal website which i built on webflow and I'm on Dribble and I get leads from there. And then I send people a Calendly link and they schedule something or they I have a form and they fill out the form on Typeform and then I send them a Calendly link and then they we agree to work together. So I send them a proposal through, you know, through whatever, through PDF. And then and then I have a DocuSign link. And it's just all these tools that are very generic. You have 10 different logins. They're paying five different subscriptions. They're, the benefit is that you can really tweak the, the the workflow to exactly what you want, but you're just it's just a mess in the process. And so, the the idea behind Bonsai, and I think a lot of these vertical, uh, you know, vertical ERPs, is that you you bring all of those tools into one in one place, and they natively integrate with each other. So 
with bonsai, for example, when you uh, when you, you we have a kind of a website builder in a form, when a client fills that out, it it populates your CRM, so it's already in your CRM. From within your CRM, you can send them a scheduling link. Bonsai is a scheduling module, so it, it, you can do that all natively. Once the once the client agrees to your, you, you can build a proposal. You can send them the proposal within Bonsai if they agree to it. You can capture payments from within there, and all of this is tracked in your CRM, so you can know, oh, I've sent this proposal to this user, but they haven't accepted it, and this user has accepted it and paid the deposit. So everything happens in one place. You have one login, one source of truth, one subscription. Um, and, and the thing that, again, from a product perspective, took us a little bit to learn is that, um, you know, type form is always going to be a better form product than Bonsai's forms. And, um, you know, uh, invoice to go is probably going to have a better, you know, uh, set of advanced features than Bonsai's invoicing and all these sorts of things. But you actually don't need to be the number one absolute best product. You need to you need to be competitive. You can't be missing big features. You you have to be relatively feature complete. But for vertical ERPs and vertical software, the the fact that all of these products are in one place and all talk to each other, like you don't have to build a custom Zapier integration to move data between them. That's something that is um, that's very attractive to users. And I, I'm talking a lot about the bonsai example, but you know, there, there are plenty of examples, mind body and kind of the fitness and, and like um, uh, exercise studio and gym management space where they do payments and booking and scheduling. And again, all of those tools, payments, booking, scheduling, um, uh, payroll, all this all exist on a standalone basis. But the fact that they're built specifically for this type of user, the, the product is opinionated and the product says, um, you know, I guess put it another way, if you're building a scheduling tool, a horizontal scheduling tool, you have to support that scheduling tool for, for I don't know, preschools and for coaches and for teachers and for startup founders and for investors. Like you have to support all these different use cases. But if you know that you want to build a scheduling tool just for uh, freelance web designers, you can really narrow the set of features that you, you know, you're not going to have all the features of a Calendly, but you can really narrow the set of features that deeply answer the, the need of, that particular persona. So um, I, I think this, uh, you know, I guess to recap, knowing exactly who you're selling to, knowing exactly what they care about in the features, and then taking the key features in each of these horizontal products, you know, scheduling and payments and invoicing, da da da, and combining those and having those work natively together. That's that's kind of the key behind um, like vertical ERPs or vertical software. Yeah, great. Um, so what what do you think? Um... I, I totally agree with you. And I, I think so. This is also something um, that you see, especially in the productivity uh, space and then productivity SaaS, let's say workplace SaaS tool space, right? Is that mm -hmm. I think um, you will you will see like opportunities or new tools kind of like popping up, which combine, let's say, key features from, let's say, the different, you know, tools that you have. Because if you like, if you look right now at like a scale up, for example, right? Like the, just from, let's say, um, if you look at the, the the number of tools that a that a sales team is utilizing, right, and is hopping like between those different tools, it's like I don't, it's like probably five to to seven tools, right? Uh, from let's say communication, mm -hmm. calendar, um, you know, uh, let's say the the sales enablement platform to whatever, right? I don't know. There's and there's all these different things, and uh, I think combining let's say key features together is probably like a, a strategy. But if we you know specifically talk about um, you know kind of like vertical zas it, it exactly what you said right it's about understanding or having kind of a starting point for 
who do you build, right? And having an understanding of that, of that, uh, let's say, target customer. What is, but let's say prior to that, what is an approach to identifying that? What is an approach to identifying an opportunity, you know, or like a, an opportunity for a vertical, you know, or, you know, because that is the ultimate starting point, right? What, what is there, do you think there's a strategy from now from your VC perspective to kind of like, you know, approaching that? Yeah, I, so I think, I think it's, so I, I think the answer there is to try to find verticals around what you know, or you already have some kind of insight mm -hmm. into, I think it's very hard. And, and I think this is the common um, way that, that these kinds of companies fail is, is just to look at, you know, I don't know, a market map and say, oh, I think restaurants are a big opportunity, or I yeah. think, um, uh, you know, uh, construction companies are a big opportunity. And so uh, the, the, the spend in small construction companies is this many billion per year. So I'm just going to go build a business there, even though I don't know anything about this, this space, it can work, you know, you, you, you can get lucky, but I think knowing, you know, both knowing again, that, that key point of distribution, like how do you sell to these people, not just the channels, but what's the messaging, what's the, what's the branding, how do you position the product and then product wise, like what do you actually start, start by building? Um, I think is a, um, yeah, I think that's a common failure mode is just, is just looking at the space. So to answer your question, I think starting with an area that you know well, um, mm -hmm. and even if that's not what you ultimately end up in, you can use that, like, let's say, you know, uh, I don't know, like uh, law firms, your, your, your friend or your brother or sister or something is a lawyer. Okay, you spend a bunch of time talking with them and maybe the law firms aren't a, aren't a, um, aren't a, a, a great category. Maybe they are, maybe they're not, but you can then use that to branch out to adjacent areas and branch out to adjacent areas. So I think this kind of, mm. I think the bottoms up approach, starting with verticals that you know uh, most deeply have some kind of insight in and can go very deep in that and branch out is a, is a better way of finding this than like completely top down saying, and, and again, you, you see this often where people will um, understand a market from a very theoretical perspective but then it becomes very apparent after six to 12 or 18 months that they're just like, you know, they're, 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 they don't have an insight into distribution. They're just building this very generic product that's not meeting users needs. And yeah, you can probably get a few people to use it if you give them it, you know, give them the product in a heavily discounted way. But, but generally without having a strong point of view on who you're selling to and, and a, a, a very intimate um, perspective on what their workflow is, I think you're, you're kind of setting yourself up for failure. Yeah, but that obviously that that requires then you know, um, heavily kind of time invested, right? Or let's say experience, right? Which is again equals to time, um, spent on on that on that particular group, right? So that would be kind of your default uh, requirement for 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 having let's say uh, higher chances of success of hitting let's say the right or or kind of targeting the right one. So um, uh, maybe then you know. Let's let's uh, let's kind of look from your perspective at, at Matrix nowadays, right? So um, obviously, um, you you know you for you it has been and and you mentioned that about Matrix as well, right? So um, the way it works is basically people are you know investing into a specific category, and for you that has obviously been kind of like fintech, right? And and vertical mm -hmm. uh, ZAS, so to say. What is um, you know. And and I think this is a very interesting uh, time to talk about it, given also kind of like the the current uh, um, you know market situation and and everything, how everything is kind of developing right now. Um, 
what is what are the 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 things that you are excited about, excited about right now to look at you know no matter kind of like you know what's going on with your portfolio companies or whatever right but like in terms of new investments new companies opportunities kind of things that you look at and you know please feel free to reference as well to you know the things that you wrote for example in your articles um things that you share openly um super excited to hear about that yeah for sure well you 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 gave away the uh, you know the answer a bit but but i think uh one of the big areas is is uh what i call vertical erps and i wrote a a series of posts on this and ver vertical ERPs or VERPs, uh, ERP is just a, um, the, so vertical ERPs are my shorthand for um, vertical SaaS plus a very deep and, and very uh, uh, well-considered um, embedded finance strategy. Um, and you certainly had this this category of, you know, vertical SaaS going back 10, 10 plus years, building SaaS for a specific use case or a specific buyer or whatever it is. Um, but, but again, the rise of, you know, the ability to embed payments, to embed lending, issuing all these things, I think is, is warranted this new, this new title, which is companies that are not just software companies that a couple of years into their life, try to bolt on a bunch of financial products, but companies that from the very beginning recognize the opportunity of combining software with financial products and build their um, again, it's not just their product, but it's build their distribution, build their pricing model, build their positioning around the combination of those two. Um, so that I mean, that's that's one big big area where I've been spending a bunch of time. I see you know a huge amount of of opportunity there, partly because the the SaaS model is also so competitive and and almost so commoditized these days. Like there are a million um, you know blog posts on how to how to do go to market on pure SaaS and identify opportunities in that and, and all this but so the playbook is very very well known very very well funded there you know i think at this point a hundred I mean, at least a hundred public SaaS companies and, and probably many more than that and so but on the other hand this from from day zero combination of SaaS and um, financial products this type of a company is only in its very early days and the, the playbook on how to do that um, is be is still being written, still being figured out, and so looking for founders who not only identify those interesting opportunities, um, but are are developing that playbook. Again, at SaaS, it's, you you kind of are copying the playbook that's well worn, but mm. the playbook doesn't exist for you know a vertical ERP. So I, I think that's one thing we we I look at and, and think about a lot. Um, maybe one other thing I'll say may, may, oh, maybe yeah, before we before we uh, continue, you know, let let me just catch you there on the spot. Uh, it would be great if you. You know, if, if you could share, even though, you know, you say like it's er, it's early in the game, you know, share some example to make it a little bit more, you know, to, to grasp it a little bit more or better on how that could look like, right? Uh, let's mm -hmm. say from a product standpoint. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So one, I mean, one basic one that a lot of companies are, are kind of grappling with now is so that typically you, typically the way vertical ERP start out is, um, you know, they have some kind of software product that gets them into a, a core workflow of a, um, a core workflow of a business. Um, and ideally that core workflow is close to um, receiving money or, or, or spending money. Cause you want to, again, as quickly as possible, um, get yourself into the company and then start using that, the value that you provide and that, that position, that key workflow to help them manage the most important thing in, in almost any business, which is you're spending money or you're, you're receiving money. 
Um, and so that's why you see a lot of, of vertical ERPs starting with some software product and, and generally payments. And so, but pricing payments uh, to those end users is, is a very complex topic. And this is one of those areas where the, the playbook is still being written and the answer differs for every single company. But, you know, the, the question is, how much of your ultimate revenue do you think that you will receive from payments versus other financial products versus SaaS? And, and based on that, that answer and how critical are payments to this product and how do they fit the, you know, in the kind of strategic, how you see the company evolving strategically. And so the, 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 the question is, do you price payments, you know, kind of at the market rate for your users and you, um, and so you, uh, you know, you encourage them to use it and it generates some revenue for you, but, but not a ton. Do your users lack payments, you know, in, in other ways? And so are you able and, and are, is your software valuable enough that you can maybe charge a premium on your payment processing, you know, rates? Um, do you give the software away for free and you charge, you know, three and a half or 4% for payments, which is above market? Or do you do the opposite and you charge a premium on software and you you kind of you almost break even on payments? Um, do you have some kind of a mixed approach? Shopify, for example, has um, different payment rates uh, for different software packages. So I'm making the numbers up here, but you know if you pay $19 a month uh, for your base Shopify subscription, then you make uh, I don't know. Then it costs you three percent for payments. If you pay fifty dollars a month, it's two point eight percent for payments. If you pay two hundred dollars a month, it's two point five percent. Whatever it is, and so I think just just figuring out that that pricing and that mix. And again, it's not just it's not just a financial and monetization question, but it's also you know what is how can you price it to get the maximum amount of users to. Um, to adopt payments, um, if that's a, a core part of, of you know what you want for this 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 user segment. So that's that's one example. There are many others. How do you you know how do you sequence other products? Um, the nice thing about financial products is that they they can all kind of lock into each other. So you have many companies in Bonsai is one example where we have a payments product. Uh, they eventually launched a um, kind of a banking product, and so you can get paid through Bonsai. And that can be deposited in your Bonsai account. And then you have a card, a Bonsai card that you can spend with. Now, a lot of neobanks have at least those two last features. But what's unique about Bonsai is that these are all generally self-employed 1099 folks who can write off a lot of um, uh, things. And so we, we have launched a tax product that scans your expenses and helps you save money on that. And that's a way to encourage users to spend more on the card, which also is a monetization um, channel for Bonsai. So again, all of these things, the software, the financial products, they all link to each other in, in kind of a product strategy and monetization strategy way. Um, and it just takes, a, again, a different mindset and a much more kind of sequence and strategic view to, to things to, to, I think, get that right. But but again, there's no one place on the internet where you can go <laughs> to sit down and, and read all the, you know, the, the, the tips and tricks on how to do that. Yeah, I mean, but it's 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 very interesting because exactly what you said, right? You cannot just like take the playbook of you know just like pure kind of uh you know the the product uh, the one on one product approach to building a SaaS business, right? It's really yep. a, a lot of detail and also you know it it all it all starts with really understanding also the vertical, right? And like getting understanding like where are those touch points where for for you know monetization. Uh, so it's 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 actually. I guess intellectually as well, quite quite challenging and and not easy to pull off. Yep. Yeah, for sure. 
Yeah. What 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 are other things um, that 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 you find exciting? I got you got you off while while you were talking. So so sorry for that. <laughs> yeah. No. No. Well, well, one one other thing I think that's exciting about this this vertical ERP um, category and and the fact that you can um, really grow the average monthly revenue and and LTV of, of these users is that it it makes entire categories of um, or entire markets uh, venture backable. You know, there, there are certain cases where, you know, from a, so venture as a business model, it's, it's very, very helpful, but you generally only invest in cases where, you know, the, the outcome is a significant multiple. Like, can I invest in this company when it's valued at, you know, uh, 25 million and, and eventually can't, will this company go public at 10 billion or 20 billion or whatever it is. So those are the, the magnitude of exits that, that you, that venture investors look for. Um, but not all markets necessarily can, can support that right there. And so for a long period of time, there have been categories. And I think freelancer uh, and very, very, very small businesses are one of those where you can certainly build a business, you can certainly make money, you can do it profitably cloud, you know, cloud software makes that very easy. You don't have to like ship, you know, ship boxes of CDs for people to install, you know, your software on their computer, you can charge by subscription. So that certainly helps, but it still hasn't raised those markets to the level of them being interesting from a venture perspective, because the total amount of, you know, value that a company can capture in the freelance market is limited. Um, but what's I, I think this is the ability to embed payments and other financial products makes those markets um, venture backable because the the market size has expanded so much. You're not just selling software to these users, which is you know X million freelancers times nineteen dollars a month. Now you can sell financial products. So that the equation is X million freelancers times nineteen dollars a month times nineteen uh, dollars a month in subscription times you know uh, fifty dollars a month in uh, in ad payment fees on average or whatever it is. Uh, and so I think that makes a lot of these a lot of markets that investors have overlooked in the past makes them makes them very interesting. Um, so that, I think that's one thing that you know a lot of markets that have been dismissed. Um, you know, people people talk a lot about the like the web 1.0 companies and the web 2.0 companies, and you know something like Webvan was um, you know people like to make fun of it and oh it didn't work and it was really stupid and burned all this money and wasn't successful. But Webvan 2.0 is Instacart, and Instacart's a, a pretty successful company. There are plenty of of examples of companies where they weren't successful the first time. It was a matter of timing, but something has changed, and these are now very. Uh, compelling categories. And I, I think you'll see that with a lot of categories um, because of the ability to now monetize through SaaS and really expand your, your LTV, or sorry, to monetize through financial products and expand your LTV. And that's the whole idea behind the, the vertical ERPs. Yeah, it's super exciting. And you know what, what I actually thought, like from your perspective, because because it requires like, it, ha it has like this, you know, intellectual depth to it, like just figuring it out, you know, um, mm -hmm. in, in terms of the, you know the 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 area of application, the the actual vertical. You know the, the the prerequisite of like understanding that really, and then you know building a functional model around that. That you know besides the actual ZAS product, you know, mm -hmm. um, does that not have also an implication on let's say the, you know, the 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 quantity and deal flow, because because it puts such a high let's say it, it puts the bar quite high, you know for for you know for actual uh, actually founders to to kind of like tackle something like that yeah it it does um yeah, and, and and matrix generally so matrix 
matrix um, is a relatively uh, we don't do we don't do many typically it's one to two or three investments per partner per year we spend a lot of time with those companies um, and so you know there are other firms that take more of a, a kind of low ownership have a broader portfolio kind of thing and so and, and those those firms do well as well as, as this matrix so there's no one right way to run a venture fund or portfolio or anything like that um, but but yeah for, for for me and for us like because I know that the, the way that we invest, which I really enjoy personally, um, you know, there's a, there's a, uh, our, our time is more constrained than our capital. We like to, because we like to invest a lot of time in our companies. I, I personally do have a very, very yeah high bar and thinking about, okay, the, the size of this opportunity, the um, insight and experience this founder has in these areas um, for sure. One other thing about, you know, matrix um, specifically, at least in, in, the U.S. because we also have a China fund and an India fund that kind of run their own strategies in those those countries is um, Matrix is Matrix U.S. that generally focuses on on U.S. businesses um, mm. or or explicitly global businesses um, and so there's just a lot of and I think there's a lot of interesting vertical ERPs that are arising in in other countries that yep. I just don't see or or because that's that's outside of you know my geographic focus. Um, but but I think a lot of companies that are sorry, a lot of countries that are digitizing very quickly, um, the opportunity for BERP for vertical ERPs is even greater, right? Where, you know, when you look at Bonsai for our, our US customers, yeah, you know, they're switching from type form and they're switching from yeah, QuickBooks, which is like a you know, 40-year-old company. So there are all these like existing software tools and we're trying to put them together. I think the more, you know, almost the more interesting opportunity are um, you know, some of these um these products you see in, in in countries like like in China, like in India, um, like in, in several African countries, I've seen where people are moving from uh, you know from pen and paper and whatever it is you know to smartphones, and they there's no existing software solution they're trying to switch from. So the and they have all this these systems that they're you know difficult to maintain, and a lot of cases the the the, the whether it's the regulations, the requirements of businesses are harder. The, ability to move money and there's a lot of offline payments um you know it makes that trickier and so um yeah i think there, there's there's probably as much if not more opportunity in these vertical mm. erps outside the u.s as, as there is inside the u.s because it's i mean technology and, and the adoption of, of technology is, is kind of a one-way one-way arrow right like somebody is not going to like start using software to do something and then say oh i wish actually i'm going to go back to my pen and paper maybe that happens one out of a million times but there's this like one-way progression from the older way of doing things to you know to, to using software to do it more efficiently, and I think that that opportunity space is is incredibly large outside the U.S. Yeah, you know, I, I was I was just wondering I, because you said that you know like um, for for the approach of of, of Matrix um, in terms of let's say the number of uh, deals that are that are made per partner per year, um, I, I guess that's also like how how the firm is kind of like set up right um, uh, in terms of the investment team right. You don't I think most like all the partners are probably like ex-entrepreneurs or like uh operators right in a specific segment that that kind of like bring the expertise kind of like you with with fintech right so there's not really kind of this um you know uh additional uh kind of investment staff for, for more junior people i don't know um and then who are kind of helping to source deals so how does that kind of like reflect the the deal sourcing um kind of strategy or or, or setup for a firm like that yeah, no, I, I think you, you you described it very very accurately. I mean, every every firm has a, has a 
different strategy, different approach, different structure, and all these things are kind of tied together. Um, and you know, and and again, you you can have two firms that have completely different fund sizes and completely different structures and strategies and focus areas and ways of sourcing, and they can both be equally successful. So, um, you know, there's there's more than one way to be a very very successful in this business. And often, you know, no two firms are exactly alike. Um, I, I can say the matrix the matrix way, which which is very successful, is um, you know, as you described, having a a relatively small team relatively more um, kind of senior investors who, who built or operated successful businesses at scale in certain areas who have a network and have credibility in those areas. And, you know, investing is, is a multi-step process. You have to find deals or have deals find you. You have to evaluate them. You have to win, you know, win the deal. You have to invest at, at a, you know, at a certain price. And then you have to help the company grow. Um, and, and our point of view is, somebody who has deep expertise in a certain area will have an unfair advantage in all of those areas. So if you have credibility in FinTech, yes, and we certainly do our fair share of, you know, outbound and going out and, and, and looking for companies, but because we don't have a, you know, a large team of, of um, kind of junior people, a lot of that's on the partners do. And so it forces you to focus on areas that you really feel passionate about, that you're excited about. We don't take the approach of like, spraying and praying and trying to talk to everybody in fintech we tried to develop a very strong point of view on here are the two or three areas that i'm most excited about that i think are going to be very interesting let me go then take the time to personally reach out to, to those people and, and talk to them um and again it's not to say that we don't you know we do get a lot of inbound and we do come across and, and talk to a lot of interesting people and, and make investments in that way as well but it, it generally is much more of a, uh, yes, I have a strong point of view on this area. I'm very bullish on this area. Let me go do that. Um, and, then, and then on helping, which I think a lot of, you know, a lot of founders think about, oh, I just, I've taken money from this firm. I'm going to put their logo on my website or pitch deck or whatever, and that's it. Uh, having built multiple companies before, along with with all the other partners at Matrix, um, the, the best thing a, a, a good investor can do is, increase the chances and the magnitude of the, the the ultimate success of the company. And a great investor, I mean, well, a bad investor can certainly break a company. So that, that's true. Like you can have a, a bad investor can, can destroy a company. Um, but a, a good investor is never going to take a company that would have a 50 million exit and make it a $5 billion exit. But like, um, I, I think they can increase the the chances. They'll increase the chance of a, of an exit from you know X to Y, and increase the magnitude of that exit from you know from from A to B or whatever it is. And mm -hmm. that's one thing we we think a lot about. Like, what are the few key things that um, the company needs to you know needs to think about? Uh, what are the few key hires they need to make? Um, but you can also go too far in that direction. I think there's um, you know there it's kind of like a Two by two quadrants. You have uh, investors who are not involved, and then investors who are involved, and then within investors who are involved, you have the ones who are destroy value and ones yeah. who who kind of create value. Um, and and I think you there's a balance to be struck there. And with Matrix, we 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 always realize that it's ultimately the founders company. Like we are, we're we're partners to them. We like to think of ourselves as members of the extended executive team. We um, are happy to be as involved as the founder wants us to be and needs us to be. Sometimes that can be for a stretch of time. Sometimes that can be, you know, very episodically, whatever it is, no, no two companies and no two ways of getting involved are the same. 
but ultimately, you know, we know and we recognize and we make it clear to founders, like it's, it's your company. We're investing in you because we believe in you. You have the vision, you have the insight, you have the, the expertise. Um, you know, if, if I know more about your market or your persona or your product, like that's a, that's a problem. Um, and so, um, yeah, I think ultimately it's, it's this recognition that we are going to be a partner, you know, 24, seven, 365, you know, we've, we've taken calls at 11 PM on Saturday night to talk to a problem and we love doing that, but, um, you know, we're there to support the founder, not, you know, push them in a direction or tell them what to do. Yeah. Hey. Matt, the, what a what a great uh, great point to end on. Uh, it was really uh, great having you on. Really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks, thanks for taking the time. Absolutely happy to, happy to do it. Really enjoyed the conversation.